you get a Bible, open to Revelation chapter 3 this morning is where we're going to be, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6 together. We're in this series of messages entitled 7, uh, what Jesus has to say to the church. And we'll be taking a look at these seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3 and seeing what Jesus said to the churches then. And what we've found so far is that despite the differences in geography and generations, that the messages still ring true in our lives today. We've seen that Jesus is speaking about what healthy, vibrant churches look like. And we've said, seen so far that they look like a church that is loving, a church that endures opposition, a church that is committed to truth, and a church that is devoted to holiness. And this morning what we want to see in this fifth church that Jesus addresses, and listen, let me just go ahead and say from the outset, when we read this text, there are no commendations, only critiques from Jesus in this one, right? So it's been beating me up all week and I just get to share the pain this morning with all of you, right? But what we want to see this morning is that Jesus says a a true church, a healthy church, is a church that is vibrant and has spiritual vitality at its very center, So the church in Sardis, let's see what Jesus has to say to them and to us. In verse chapter 3, verse 1, it says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then... What you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father." And before the angels, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, as we get started this morning, I want to take it back a little old school on you. How many of you guys remember a little Millie Vanilli? Anybody remember some Millie Vanilli back in the late 80s, early 90s? Y'all don't know Millie Vanilli, right? Y'all don't remember Millie Vanilli. Uh, Millie Vanilli, right? That just sounds funny to even say that name. They were a German R&B duo that skyrocketed on the charts in the late 80s and early 90s. They released songs like, Girl, You Know It's True. Ooh, 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 I love you. You remember that one? I remember that one, right? Songs like, Baby, Don't Forget My Number, Blame It on the Rain, and All or Nothing. Now, as they made their climb, they were selling out concert venues, they were releasing albums, uh, they were winning Grammys and AMAs, selling millions of cassettes. You guys remember those little things, little plastic cassettes that had little wheels in them and a little magnetic strip that went along the bottom? You don't know nothing about cassettes either, do you? Some of you don't. Um, they, were, they, touched, they, they, they touted themselves as groundbreaking entertainers, even comparing themselves to like Elvis right, or Bob Dylan, right, they thought they were the next wave and movement in music, but there was one problem with Millie Vanilli, right, the two supposed lead vocalists weren't really vocalists at all, they were lip-syncing all of the music, now suspicions began to rise whenever they began to conduct interviews, and their English in those interviews was like sketchy at best, as they tried to communicate, right? It was all broken English, and that here they are singing these melodies and dropping these riffs on their albums. 
All those suspicions were confirmed when in 1989, their performance track of Girl, You Know It's True at a concert in Connecticut began to skip over and over again, repeating the partial line, Girl, You Know It's, Girl, You Know It's, Girl, You Know It's, Girl, You Know It's. And they pretended to keep singing and dancing for a little while, but eventually they just kind of ran off stage embarrassed in front of all the folks who had gathered there to hear them sing. Now eventually, the group's founder came clean and confessed that the two performers had not sung a note on their albums or in their concerts. And following those admissions, there were all kinds of class action lawsuits that were filed under consumer fraud protection laws. And eventually, the judge ruled that those who had bought concert tickets and albums should be refunded their money. And so there's all kinds of big payouts, not big payouts, but like 10 bucks here for a cassette and maybe 20 bucks here for a concert ticket to the people who had actually spent money on these things. And so you're like, what in the world does Millie Vanilli have to do with the church at Sardis? Let me tell you what it has to do with them, right? It teaches us this, a very important lesson, that it is possible to have an outer reputation with no inner reality. It is possible to have an outer reputation with no inner reality. And listen, what is damaging on the concert stage and in a recording studio is deadly in the life of a church. It is deadly in the life of a Christian. And this was the situation at Sardis. They had an outer reputation, but they had no inner reality, no spiritual vitality, no life, no health. They were essentially lip-syncing Christians. Right? They mirrored, essentially, the, the trajectory and progression of the city around them. Let me give you a little info about Sardis. Sardis was about 30 to 40 miles southeast of Thyatira. It was on this circuit of cities to which this letter or this revelation would have been delivered after John penned it. And while it was at one time one of the most glorious cities in Asia, by the time the revelation was written... Sardis, it's much of its splendor lie in the past. It had one time been a wealthy capital city of the Lydian Empire kingdom. It had an acropolis that also on top of the, this massive out rock outcropping had a fortress situated on top. And the fortress was on top of this 1,500 foot cliff that was considered to be impregnable, that it, you could not sack this city that it was defensible to the very end and no one, no one could overcome it. And whenever the city was attacked, the populace, they would go up into the Acropolis on the very top of the rocks and they would wait for the opposing army to tire and leave because they just couldn't penetrate it. Sardis was a military power and a city-state that was feared by all and became wealthier and wealthier due to all the trade and commerce that also flowed through the city. Now, one of the kings of Sardis, of this Lydian empire, was Croesus, and he traveled in 546 BC to fight against Cyrus of Persia. And eventually, Cyrus drove them back, and he returned home for the winter. Whenever he came back, Cyrus followed him. And the people of the city, as they had done before, they went up into the fortress on top of the rock outcropping, prepared for the siege. But the siege went differently this time. Because one of Cyrus's troops, he climbed up a crevice on this unscalable, like quote-unquote unscalable cliff. And he found where the watchmen were missing and he opened the gates to the fortress and 14 days later, Sardis fell. It was conquered. And for the next 300 years, the city had its ups and downs, its rises and falls. 
And then in 214 BC, Antiochus III, he invaded once more. The cliff was scaled. The gates were opened again. The city was sacked. And this time Sardis never recovered. In 17 BC, it was destroyed, or AD, it was destroyed by an earthquake that rocked the region. And the Roman Empire helped it rebuild, but it never regained its former glory and continued to live on its prior reputation. That was the situation at Sardis. And Jesus says it's the exact same situation going on in the church there as well. Listen, what Jesus has to say to this church, he says in verse 2, he says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're actually dead. Externally, outwardly, you look like there's all kinds of things going on, all kinds of things that are happening in the life of the church, but internally you're withering away, you're in a spiritual coma. There is no vitality, there is no life, there is no health, Jesus says. In verse 2, he said, goes on to say this, he says, I have found your works, not, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. That word complete can also be translated full. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this, your works, they're hollow. Right, there's just an outer shell, right? It's like one of those little Easter egg eggs that you get, you know, in in a in an Easter basket that just has an outer chocolatey shell with no substance in the middle. There's no Cadbury cream inside. It's just a shell. There's no substance to it. That's what Jesus is saying to this church. You lack vitality, you lack life, and you lack substance. And I want you to know, church, this situation or this condition in the life of a church or a Christian, it doesn't develop overnight. It's not like some kind of cataclysmic event happens, and then all of a sudden you find yourself to be hollow, insubstantial, and lacking spiritual health and vitality. It doesn't happen overnight, but it happens over time. And let me tell you how it happens over time. It happens over time slowly as your life and my life and the life of a church as it slowly drifts. And you never drift anywhere positive, right? (laughs) Every time you drift, you drift somewhere negative. It requires vigilance to maintain vitality. But when you drift, here's what we drift toward. We drift toward the preservation of self and we drift away from the exaltation of Christ. We drift towards self-preservation and we drift away from the glory of God in the center of our lives and the center of a church. And what eventually happens is we find ourselves to be in the position of Sardis in a spiritual coma. And one of the greatest ways that takes place in your life and in mine, listen, is when we do this, is whenever our our faith retreats into the private sectors of our lives and it does not advance into the public spheres. Right? right any, any time a company goes from being privately owned to being publicly owned, and they get listed on the, Wall, like on, the, on the stock market there in Wall Street or the NASDAQ or someplace, they have an IPO, right? They go public. So people can buy shares of them and invest in them, right? There's a it's very public ownership there and Jesus is saying there is no IPO to your faith it's retreated into the private spheres and you may still gather every Sunday and you may still go to group every Wednesday or every Thursday or every Tuesday or every Sunday afternoon but there is no public advancement of faith into these very public spheres of your life and here's why I believe that's what's going on in Sardis. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 5 as he commends there's a very small group of people there who he says have not soiled their garments 
In other words, they've stayed faithful to what I've called them to. And listen to what he says to them. He says, To the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Jesus says, I will confess their names before God and before all the hosts of heaven. Now that language shows up elsewhere in Matthew's gospel. And in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, if you acknowledge me, if your faith is moving into the public spheres of your life, if you don't retreat back and just have a private faith on Sunday morning, but it's actually there in your classrooms on Monday morning, in your workplaces on Tuesday morning, in your family life on Wednesday evening, if it's there's, there's, in all these public spheres, as you hang out with friends on the street on Friday night, it's in the public spheres of your life. You acknowledge me before men, Jesus says, I will acknowledge you before my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus says there are some there who are still doing that, but many, he says, who, are, who have stopped. They've stopped. And they've retreated into self-preservation as opposed to Christ's exaltation was at the center of their life. And it's a slow drift that takes place where we abandon our distinctiveness and we lose our charter. And listen, the truth is, is there may be some of you here this morning who are in that very position, you don't even know it. You don't even know it. I heard um, one of our former Kevin, I heard Kevin give an illustration a while back, and I'm going to rip it off from him, but give him credit for it. He used an illustration about how sometimes when you're driving in the car and you've got a, your favorite songs on the radio, right? And you're listening to this song and you start singing with that song. Well, your voice doesn't sound as good as the song because, right, you're not Millie Vanilli. And so as you're riding along, you start slowly, progressively turning the radio up. And so you're singing a little bit louder and you turn the radio up a little bit louder and then you, you're singing louder. You turn it up a little bit louder and you're singing louder. And then you turn the key off of the car and you walk into the house, you go about your business, you come back out and you crank the engine and all of a sudden it's like blaring right through the speakers because it slowly, progressively climbed in volume. And that's how this drift takes place in our lives. It happens slowly over the course of time with small incremental decisions day after day not to acknowledge Jesus before men, not to have our faith go public in those spheres of our lives, but to shrink back into the private sectors. Listen, C.S. Lewis is brilliant, and he wrote uh, a, a really great piece called The Screwtape Letter. Some of you may have read it, but it's the counsel of an older, wiser demon who's mentoring a protege, a younger demon who's less experienced on how to tempt and entice and draw people away from their relationship with God. And I want you to listen to the counsel that he gives him. He says, you're making excellent progress. My only fear is that you will awaken this man to a sense of his real position, we know his real position, like right? He's the frog in the kettle. The temperature's slowly rising. Eventually, it's going to boil. The music is going to be blaring, right? But we don't want him to know his real position. Lewis goes on to say, he must not be allowed to suspect that he is slowly heading away from the sun on a line which will carry him into the cold and dark of utmost space. It doesn't matter how small the sins are as long as they edge the man out of the light and into nothing. Indeed, the safest road into hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts, right over the cliff. That's how drift happens in our lives. 
when we move from having inner reality to just having a shell of an outer reputation. And that may be where some of you are this morning. And you don't even know it. You don't even know it. But listen, this is hard. But Jesus does. Look what he says to the church. I know your deeds. They're not complete. They're not full. They're empty, hollow, and unsubstantial. And listen, have you ever noticed, those of you who are married, or if you're a parent, or if you're a child, so that would probably include every one of us in this room, (laughs) right? It's those who know you best that see through the facade of your life, isn't it? Right? You can have a great, students, listen, you have a great reputation in front of all your teachers. And they think that you're just this rock star Christian, right? But your parents see in your home, they see they see the, 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 like the self-preservation, the self-centeredness. They see how your life doesn't revolve around Christ and his gospel, but revolves around you and your preferences and your wants and your wishes. Spouses, right? Some of you wives see straight through your husbands. And some of you husbands see straight through your wives. I have a wife who sees straight through me every day. You see through all the outer shell. You see through all the facade. And there's no one who knows you better, church, and the one who's made you. And the one who's formed you. He sees to the very core of your soul. And he knows. He knows. Even if you don't this morning. Right? And if this is where you are. Listen, I, I, I want to I help you see if maybe this is where you are. I'll give you some evidence of that. Because sometimes, like, the, the, what, what Satan doesn't want is for you to have signposts. I'm going to try and give you some. Okay? Tom Rainer in his book uh, a few years ago called The Autopsy of a Deceased Church, he writes about the evidences of a sleepy or a sick inner reality in the life of a church or even in the life of a Christian. He says several things. He says what, what churches tend to do is they tend to treat the past as the hero. In other words, everything that came before us is things, the nostalgia is what we've got to hold on to because those things worked in the 40s, they're going to work today. Right? They treat the past as a hero. In addition, he says, they refuse to adapt to the needs of the present community. They don't change any structures. They don't change any formats. They don't, not that they're shifting the, the gospel or the doctrine. They don't shift the structures and the formats and the way they go about engaging people. He says, another dead, uh, autopsy of a dead church, he says, moving the focus of the budget inward. So all the monies is directed inward at programs that will only serve the needs of the members of the church. He says, you allow the great commission to become the great omission right? So you're not making disciples and advancing the kingdom. Don't, don't talk about those kinds of things. You let the, they say they let the church become a preference driven out of selfishness and personal agendas. They see the tenure of pastors sharply decrease. They fail to have regular corporate prayer. They have no clear purpose or vision, and they obsess over facilities and buildings. And listen, that, that conversation has begun to circulate here at Redeemer. Like, I, I get it every once in a while. Like, when are, when are we going to when are we going to launch a capital campaign? When are we going to build a building? When are we going to buy some land? When are we going to move out? And here's what, I, here's what I'll say to that. When we can start meeting budget here, then we'll consider looking at maybe where God will take us elsewhere. But also, I want to remind you, church, listen, when Jesus returns, he's not coming back for a building, but he's coming back for a bride. And that's the people. And so whether or not we ever move out of this daycare, what I want to see is God build a people here who are advancing his kingdom in this place that he's planted us. 
some other indications that you might be sleepy or sick, have an sick inner reality in the life of a church or a Christian is this. I, I thought of several things that kind of piggyback off of what Rainer says. He says, I, I, I said the people begin to infight and argue or they just leave right, because there's not enough of the right kind of people there or the right kind of programs there. All right, and I've seen it over and over again in the life of a church. And one of the evidences, I think, in the life of a Christian is that they're sick and they're a little bit sickly or they're in a coma is that they bounce from church to church to church looking for the place to bring vitality to their life, right? As opposed to seeing God as sending them into a place to add vitality in that, right? You see, you see what I'm saying? The difference is, right? I'm going to go look for a place that's going to give me vitality rather than being a part of Jesus infusing vitality in a place and I'm going to plant myself there. And if they don't have that thing that I'm looking for, I'll help launch it. I'll help start it. I'll help grow it and see it multiply. In addition, the church becomes known, uh, the programs turn inward addressing only the needs. We talked about that. The preaching loses its distinctively Christian voice oftentimes in churches that are slowly decaying and dying. Right? And so what, what the preaching sounds like on Sunday morning is like anything else you would hear on daytime talk shows, right? It sounds just like Dr. Phil, right? It's seven ways to have a, a better marriage, seven ways to have better finances, seven ways to raise more well-adjusted kids. And that's the preaching. There's no talk about sin. There's no talk about repentance. There's no talk about Christ, right? There's not holding him high. You're not seeing people come to faith in Jesus, in churches that are, de- that, that, that are decaying from the inside, they don't even see it, right? They're hollow. They can't remember the last time they baptized someone. They can't remember the last time somebody came to faith through the ministry of that church. And that's a problem, right? We can have, listen, if you're moving into the community and you're looking for a good church, man, I hope that God would bring you here, right? We, we would love to have transfers come and plug in and be a part of what God's doing here and the mission and vision of our church. But if we're not seeing people who are crossing from death to life in this church, that is a red flag. That's a signpost. And if God, you're not a part of that advancement in your own personal life, listen church, that's a signpost for you. That you're moving towards self-preservation. And your faith is moving out of the public spheres and in the private sector. In addition, the members cease to live as a gospel counterculture in their city, but they look and live just like everyone else who are around them. Their priorities are the same. Their values are the same. They raise their kids the same. They use their money the same. Everything, just, they just look like a mirror image of the people around them. There's no distinctiveness about them. There's no salt about them there's no brightness about them in their context right the, the, and, and, and listen I got several more but I'll give you one last one you just stop expecting God to do big things and you just kind of settle in to routines and ruts you stop expecting God to change the heart of your kid Stop expecting God to change the heart of your parents. Stop expecting God to save your neighbor that you've been barbecuing with for the last two years. You stop expecting God to do big things. See, some of us have been lulled into this mode of self-preservation. We've drifted there. And what Jesus is coming to us this morning to say to, the, to us, what he, what he has to say to the church is this. Wake 
up. I didn't say that. That's what he said. Wake up, church. And listen, Jesus is so kind and compassionate. He tells us how to be woke. That sounded really trendy. I didn't mean it that way. And so this morning, as we, the rest of the time that we spend together, I want to tell you how Jesus says that you and I can be woke as a church, woke as believers in our context. Because Jesus says, wake up, strengthen what remains. Don't let it die. You're in this coma. Come out of it. And here's the prescription that he gives. First of all, Jesus says, you have to remember. You have to remember your commission. You have to remember your commission. In fact, Jesus, when he t- when in, in, the, in the text, in, in Revelation chapter 3, when Jesus says this in verse 3, remember then what you have received and heard. Jesus said there's... And there's a couple of things that I think Jesus is speaking of here when he says, remember what you've received and heard. First of all, he's saying, remember your commission. Listen, back in Revelation chapter 1, in verse 5 and 6, particularly in verse 5, listen to what John says about Jesus. This is what he says. He says that Jesus has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. He's made us a kingdom. What does it mean to be a part of a kingdom? It means that we are a part under Jesus' rule and reign. That Jesus has commissioned us as a gospel counterculture. As an alternate Rockwall County in the heart of Rockwall County. So the way that we shape our lives, the way that we structure our lives, would be a, 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 a different vision for life here in the heart of Rockwall County than the citizens of Rockwall County have for their lives. He says, you've got to wake up and you've got to remember that you're a kingdom, that you bend your knee to Jesus and not to the cultural norms, not to the cultural values. That you bend your knee to Jesus in both the private sectors of your life and the public sectors of your life, acknowledging him before men. You've got to wake up to that reality, church, that you've been commissioned. You have a charter. Listen, every organization that starts has a charter, doesn't it? Every nonprofit has a charter that they come out of the box with. Right? And the charter defines the mission. It defines the purpose. Why does this organization exist? And Jesus says we exist to be a kingdom, to show off the glories of God as salt and light in the context of our community. That's what he calls us to be. Jesus says you're a kingdom and priest to God. That you mediate, right, relationship between God and his people And this is beautiful. It comes out of the Old Testament language where in the Old Testament you had kingdoms all around Israel that had priests. So there was this select group of people who mediated this relationship between God and and their people. Their gods. But what God calls His people in the Old Testament to be is a kingdom of priests. In other words, every one of you, every one of you would have this representative effect in the lives of others. Showing them the beauties and glories of God as you live out the saltiness and brightness in your context. Jesus says, remember your commission, you're a kingdom, and I've made you priest before God. And listen, whenever we begin to drift and slip into self-preservation, we forget that commission. And a church forgets that's why it's here. Every once in a while, right, we need a little smelling salts. Kind of be passed under our nose, like, whoa, whoa. Right? Wake us up. That's why we're here. 
Listen, Jesus did not bring us from where we were to where we are so that we could gather every Sunday and sing hymns and praise songs in a daycare and listen to some C-minus preaching on a weekly basis, right? That's not why we're here. And maybe we can eat a few fellowship meals together. And maybe we can have, uh, you know, a few classes and do a service project once every three years, right? That's not why he brought us here. He brought us here to be light and salt in the midst of a dark and decaying culture. Like you look around, you're like, I don't see a whole lot of decay and darkness. And listen, that's because some of the people who are living in it don't even know that's where they are. And that's why Jesus has brought us here. He says, remember your commission as a kingdom and a priest. We need to remember that our commission is to be a church that is, that is not only in the city. You've heard me talk about this before, some of you, but it's for this city. It's for this county. It's for this community. And there's a difference between those two, right? I don't have time to go into all that this morning, but I'll give you one. One example of a difference between those two kinds of churches. The one that's in the city and one that's for the city. Right? A church that is in the city tends to be filled with fine, good, respectable, and upstanding citizens of the neighborhoods around her. Right? Because you've got all these people who are coming into church having their faith quarantined to the private sector of their life and not in the public sphere. So they're filled with all these great people. Right? They grew up in church. But you know what a church that is for the city is filled with? It's filled with I used to be kinds of people. You know what Paul says in the book of Titus, and I love this text, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, once disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, a church that is for the community, it's filled with people who have a rap sheet. They have a past that would make you blush. They've done things that would make you squirm in your seat. But God's kindness appeared in their life in the person of Jesus. And he saved them. Not because they cleaned up their act and got all their T's dotted or I's dotted and T's crossed. But he saved them out of the richness of his kindness and mercy so that they might have the hope of eternal life. And he washed them through the regeneration of the power of the Holy Spirit and brought them to life. And they used to be those kinds of people. That's a church that's for the city. And that's the commission that we have, church. To be that kind of church. A kingdom that bends its knee to Jesus and represents him to those around us in the private and public spheres of our lives. That we would not be ashamed, as Paul says in Romans 1, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where it is the power of God unto salvation, first for the Jew and then for the Greek. But that we would boldly step forth into our community. See, a church, I could preach on this for a long time, a church that is in the city, listen, it becomes like a planter's wart. You ever had a planter's wart before? Can I get a witness? 
You're like, no, I wear shower shoes in public spaces. Listen, I did camp ministry in South Florida for an entire summer in college, and I, I showered in public spaces without shower shoes an entire summer. I would not recommend it. So at the end of the summer, I had this nasty, massive planter's wart on the bottom of my left foot, right at the ball of my foot, right? And it was this wart that kind of ex- had this bubble on the outside, but you know what it did? It kind of had a taproot that grew up inside. And so I had to drop all this medicine on it to kind of dissolve it and begin to break it up until it finally began to kind of decay and wither away. Then I had to take, do you really want to hear this? I'm not sure that you do. I had to eventually pull that sucker out of my foot, right? It was like this, this nasty, like pulling a, taproot out of the ground. This is disgusting. Now you're all hungry and ready to go eat lunch. But, but listen, churches that are just in this city, they become like that. They become ingrown. But churches that are for the city, they have tentacles that reach into the community and the lives of people. They're not, it's not pushing up inside, but it's pushing out into the community. Listen, I get excited. I get excited because... One of the things that we want to do at Redeemer is listen, we do want to care for the needs of the people who are here. We do. It's one of the reasons that we started Renew classes to help equip people. And it was awesome to see nearly 50 people here Wednesday night to deepen their understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity and understand better how to make sense of the Scriptures, how to study the Bible. It's one of the reasons that we're going to start a Sunday morning life group at 9 a.m. after Easter. Steve Welch is going to help teach that. For those of you who's like, man, my midweek schedule is so busy that I just, I don't, I don't, it's hard for me to get to a Wednesday night or a Thursday night or a Tuesday night. So there'll be a 9 a.m. group here on Sunday morning starting after Easter. It's one of the reasons we're going to launch Kids Club after Easter to help disciple our kids and raise them up in the faith. We're doing all these things. Some of you go to hospitals and you visit people and you pray for them and you engage those who are sick and those who are weak and you care for them. And that's beautiful to see. But you know what gets me excited? That stuff gets me excited. But if all that stuff was taking place just for the internal workings of the church, then we would find ourselves eventually in a very sick and comatose position. But what gets me excited as well is when I sit with church members, and I did this a couple of weeks ago, and they tell me, look, man, I've been driving around the community, and I I saw this old abandoned building that's about 10 minutes north of us in the city of Nevada, and God's put it on my heart, and I, 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 I would love to get my hands on that building. It's an old church and an old gym, and it's a two-acre property. And I'd love to get my hands on that building because there's nothing in that under-resourced community that's serving the needs of the people there. I'd love to start after-school programs through that. I'd love to see a food bank there for the under-resourced in that area. I'd love to see programs meeting the needs of people where they are in their lives. But it costs, they want 500 grand for the thing, and I don't have money. So he's thinking about trying how to get a grant written from the government to buy that building and, and so that he could function in it. I told me he need to start a GoFundMe page and just see what God would, what God would do. That gets me excited because there's people here who want to see tentacles reach into the community. Listen, this morning we have here with us one of the representatives from the Pregnancy Resource Center in Rockwall, uh, Ms. Raven Henson. Her and I met a couple of months ago. And she's like, we really want to strengthen our network of church partnerships so that when people, women come to faith through the ministry of the Pregnancy Resource Center, and there were, there were close to 50, I think, that came to faith just last year through that ministry in Mesquite and Rockwall, that there's a church. We don't just give them a list of churches, but we say, hey, here, call Susie 
over, or, or can I give your number to Susie at Redeemer? She's going to call you and walk alongside of you, help you connect to the local church. And listen, if there are people in this room who want to have a tentacle of ministry that reaches the community through them, Raven's going to be at the kiosk in the back of the room this morning after we finish, and I'll be there with her. I'd love to introduce you to her, and she can tell you story after story about how God is impacting the lives of people through that ministry and how you can be a part of it. There's tentacles reaching into the community like, man, I don't have a vision to go buy a $500,000 piece of property. But you know what you can do? You can invest in inviting people who are living next door to you. You can, church. I read a statistic the other day that talked about a healthy church, a mark of a healthy church. One of the marks of a healthy church is that it extends 10 times, annually, 10 times the number of invitations compared to its average attendance. So that would mean for us, those who call Redeemer home, who are here on a consistent basis, if we got about 60 to 70 adults who are part of the congregation, who are part of the membership here at the church, that would mean we were extending six to 700 personal invitations every year because we're investing in relationships and we're inviting people. When was the last time you invited someone, even somebody you thought there's no way they would have interest in going to church? When was the last time you knocked on the door and said, come with me? Come with me at Easter. Come with me at Christmas. Come with me this weekend. When was the last time you invited someone? We need to remember our commission. And I'm running out of time, so we've got to move. You, need to rem- you also have to wake up to God's power. God's power. He hasn't just called us to this, but he's also equipped us for it. Listen to what, how Jesus describes himself in verse 1. Jesus identifies himself as the one who holds the seven spirits. Nearly every scholar and commentator that you read on that says, listen, what Jesus is saying here is this. He's referring to the Holy Spirit. Seven was a number of completion or fullness in the Bible. So the full spirit of God, Jesus says, that's, that's, that's what I'm holding. And Jesus not only holds, but he also sends it. And he sends it to empower his people to fulfill the mission that he's given them, the commission that he has for them. That's why in the Great Commission, when he says, go and make disciples, he says, I will be with you to the very end of the age because the Holy Spirit's going to come. And he's going to indwell you in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Before he says that, he says, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and empower you to do that. To be that kind of church that moves into the public spheres and doesn't just stay in the private sector. He says, I will empower you in the very power church that brought you from death to life. If you're a Christian in this room this morning, is indwelling in you right now to move you into those public spheres of life on your school campus, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. That you're not going alone but you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to take that step, to invite that neighbor, to pray for that building, to care for those women. Don't forget that, that, listen, I think many of us live as if Jesus has saved us and we're going to see him one day and that's great. But right now we forget that the very power of God dwells within us for the accomplishment of this commission that he's given us. Wake up to that, church. I told you it's been beating me up all week. 
I get to share the pain. Wake up to it. What would it look like if you were constant in prayer for God to move in this body of believers so that students on your campus, so that families in your neighborhood, so that single moms or single dads in your workplace, that God would use the tentacles of ministry through the life of this church to bring them to faith, disciple them, and send them out. What if you were constant in prayer? Not just for your dog and for your cat and for your, your planter's wart on your grandmother's foot, right? But if you were praying for God to awaken the hearts and lives of people to save and sanctify. What if you were active active in hospitality, opening your life up to other people, even people who were different than you and a little bit quirky. Because listen, whether you think it or not, when you look in the mirror, you got some quirks yourself. But you were hospitable to people and opening your life up to them as opposed to withdrawing into self-preservation that you saw God's call to active participation in hospitality, opening your life up to new people and trusting that the Spirit's gonna empower you to do that. What if you were faithful in stewardship and leveraging your gifts and leveraging your time and leveraging your talents and your resources toward the advancement of God's kingdom outside of these walls in the very public spheres of your life? What might God do in a church that is awakened to his very power in her midst? I would love to see it. So I'm going to ask you this this morning. Would you pray with me for that? Between now and Easter, would you pray with me for that? Finally, we've got to land the plane somewhere. <laughs> Not only do you re- return to your, our commission and wake up to God's power, but listen, finally, you've got to remember God's compassion. You've got to remember God's compassion. If you go back in Revelation chapter 1 again, you see Jesus say these, or John say these words about Jesus, that he has set us free from our sins. That the very tenderness and kindness and compassion of God has turned us from running headlong into the darkness and taking, to taking steps into the light. His Paul says it this way in Romans chapter two. He says it's the very kindness of God and his forbearance and patience. That is what's led you to repentance. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter two. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Another but. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Church, one of the things that we tend to forget and need to be reminded of constantly is God's tenderness, his kindness, his compassion, his mercy. That he has awakened us from the dead. You know, this, one of the things my daughter loves, it's almost seven years of age, are the Disney princess movies. 
don't know if your little girls loved those whenever they were little or if you had little girls or those of you who are women now loved those when you were little girls. But my daughter loves them. But there's a recurring theme in many of those stories, isn't there? You got this beautiful princess who is deceived and then she falls into this sleep-like death. And there she finds herself until she, this handsome prince rides into town, right? And he comes to save her. And how does he save her? He saves her with true love's kiss. And as he plants the kiss on her lips, all of a sudden, (gasps) she breathes again and comes to life and is awakened. And listen, I don't know about you, but I'm even captivated by those stories. They still compel, why? Why are we so captivated by those stories? Because, I want you to know, church, there is a reality under that fantasy. They point to something that is true. And the fact is this, is that there was a prince who awakened you by a kiss, by his kindness, by his tenderness, by his love, by his compassion, by his mercy, that he brought you to life from the dead. And when you and I forget that, then we drift towards self-preservation and we, for, we are, are asleep to the power of God in our lives. And we, we walk away from our commission. But whenever we remember, whether you were raised in church, and you started tithing when you were three, and you did flannel board Jesus, and all of that, you were born separated from God. And the very kiss of Jesus brought you to life. The only thing that could bring you to life. And some of you need to be reminded of his grace this morning. Of his kindness. It would awaken your heart. And set your feet on a path. Moving away from the drift. To being vigilant. And as you're vigilant that there will be renewed vitality. Jesus says, it's not too late. It's not too late. It's not too late. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, help us to remember that what brought us to life, what awakened us for the very first time is the thing that will awaken us to the very end. And we would be captivated by your son, by his beauty and glory. May we know, not just cognitively and intellectually, but experientially, kindness and tenderness and compassion and mercy of a great God and King. As we're reminded of the fact that your ways are not ours. We cannot hold those two things together, but you did so beautifully in your son. And because of him coming to live and coming to die in our place and rise from the grave and pouring out his spirit on men and women, boys and girls, that would bring them to life, that would would waken them with, with vitality and give them power to fulfill the commission that you've given us. God, may we as a church return to that. If there are areas in which we have drifted personally, God, awaken us to return. If there are areas in which we have drifted corporately, awaken us to return. 
so that we might be a church that is in this city and it is for this city and not asleep at the wheel. We ask it in Jesus' name.